Let us go to our God in prayer. Most gracious and loving God, we give thanks that you have given us your word. And we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine your words, that they may not be words just of interest or curiosity, of poetry or interesting insights, but truly they would be your living word to us this day, shaping us, molding us into your likeness. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 19. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. I thank you again for your welcome to Richmond this weekend. We are delighted to be here in your congregation and grateful to your pastor for his invitation and welcome. My colleague in the Divinity School in Edinburgh, Joshua Ralston, was formerly a member of this congregation. Many of you will recall him. He and his wife, Sarah, and their daughters are amongst us in Edinburgh, and your loss is decidedly our gain. As you may have heard, my wife and I are spending a sabbatical year in Princeton, New Jersey. This has been an exciting and enjoyable time, learning about the United States through travel and conversation and through visits to different parts of your country. On this trip, we've been joined by my sister and her husband, who are here on holiday from Scotland. In the course of the year, we've watched the World Series, the Super Bowl, and your presidential election, all gripping events in their different ways. And perhaps most baffling, however, has been the seasons of the year. Last week, we had temperatures in the mid-70s in Princeton, and then a drop of 40 degrees and 10 inches of snow and ice. But it all adds to the rich tapestry of life and it gives us plenty to write home about. The phenomenon of snow days in particular has provided a new experience for us. Your accurate weather forecasting, unlike ours, we can't predict what's coming across the Atlantic. But your own accurate forecasting enables good foresight and planning and almost everything shuts down for 24 hours until the roads and sidewalks are made safe again. On the campus at Princeton Seminary, the only activity that continues during snow days is the daily worship in Miller Chapel. And on the snow days, I've attended worship, and I've been struck by how instinctively we give thanks for two things. First, we thank God for the beauty of the world as it's decked with bright snow in sunlight. This is part of the wonder of creation. But then we immediately proceed to thank God for the people who clear it away with their shovels and vehicles. I suppose this makes good sense. We should be grateful for both of these. But there is some tension between thanking God for a gift of nature and then proceeding to thank God for those who remove it immediately. It's rather like saying to your house guest, we're glad that you've come, but please leave as soon as possible. This real and proper attention conveniently illustrates for me this morning the two readings that are prescribed for the third Sunday in Lent. Two very different readings, Psalm 19 and 1 Corinthians 1. These are familiar passages, but suddenly bringing them together results in a juxtaposition that provides a real challenge for a preacher on this Sunday of the year. 
Psalm 19 speaks of the splendor of the skies as declaring the glory of God's handiwork. The majestic creation above us is matched by the gift of God's law beneath the skies, the law that governs our human life here on earth. The psalm is a celebration of beauty and order. All is well, it seems, in heaven and on earth. As the sun rules the skies, so the law governs our human affairs. We can sing confidently our praise of God and rejoice in the prosperity of our times. We can celebrate the rule of law in democratic societies according to the spirit of Psalm 19. When harvest comes, we celebrate the rhythms of life and the care of God's work over all God's creatures. The health and strength given to us and to our children are great blessings to be appreciated. The fresh air and signs of spring and the blossoming trees renew our spirits, making us glad and grateful to be alive. The world is charged with the grandeur of God, says Gerald Manley Hopkins. It will shook out like shining foil. This is a bright vision of divine goodness, imparted wisdom, and borrowed beauty. But then we come to the first letter of the Corinthians and Paul takes us to a very different place. We preach only Christ crucified. His death, a scandal to the Jewish world steeped in its Hebrew scriptures. His execution, sheer foolishness to Greek philosophers. But this one thing Paul says, I have resolved to know amongst you Christ and him crucified. This is a much darker mystery, is it not, than that of Psalm 19. It's a more somber world into which we're led during the season of Lent, when we're asked to contemplate the wisdom of God in this one figure hanging from the cross. This was Martin Luther's great preoccupation 500 years ago as he ministered to his congregation in Wittenberg. The painting of him by Lucas Cranach in the triptych above the altar in the town church is one that you can still see today. Luther, standing in the pulpit, points to the painting of the crucified Christ. In front of him there sits his little congregation, his family, his students, his fellow townspeople. It does us no good, he writes, to recognize God in his glory and majesty until we recognize God in the humility and shame of the cross. In the early history of the church, there was a time when our faith might have developed very differently. Many believed that the material world was degraded and corrupt. Our only hope was to flee from it by ascending into a spiritual realm where we could be liberated from the temptations and pains of the body. The created world was the work of a lesser God. It was a wretched place for the most part. Whereas the God of Jesus sought to raise us up and release us from the trials of material existence. 
If this view had prevailed, then the church would have functioned with only an abbreviated version of the New Testament and no Old Testament scriptures at all. And that possibility is worth contemplating for a moment as these two readings lie before us. This would have been a very different faith, one in the God who rescues us from the material world, a Jesus who releases us from the prison of the body and the wretchedness of human history. And we should recognize that this must have appeared a very attractive vision to many people at that time and even in later centuries. In the absence of painkillers and modern medicine, many of our ancestors must have lived short and troubled lives. Frequently disrupted by wars and enslavement, their days were uncertain and fraught with danger. At times, the only hope was released from the conditions of bodily existence. Lord, get me out of here would have been their cry. Set me free from this veil of tears. Deliver me from my mortal pains. Release me from the jail of this body with its incurable diseases and irreversible deformities. Before we reject this way of thinking, we need to learn of its attractions. Even today, many forms of Christianity still tilt in that direction. I can recall as a youngster learning to sing the chorus, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Yet this is neither the teaching of the psalmist nor the apostle. It's a theology that was decisively rejected in the history of the church. The God of Jesus is also God the creator. The crucified Christ displays God's wisdom. But this is the same wisdom that we see in the stars, the seasons of the year, the abundance of the earth and the presence of law and order in our lives. God, our great redeemer, is also God, the creator. And perhaps as a church, we must simply live with that tension. For there are different moods that accompany the Christian life. We need a celebration of nature, a gratitude for moral standards, a chance to lament during times of loss and to seek deliverance on days of trouble. These are all features at one time or another of our lives, and these must be accommodated within our worship. These various registers of faith are part and parcel of our liturgy and our devotion. And for this reason, the seasons of the Christian year have much to offer us as we move through the various inflections of Scripture. Advent is not Lent. Christmas is not Pentecost. Good Friday is not Easter Sunday. In other ways, however, these two passages of Scripture gesture towards one another in important ways. 
And let me try to say what this might mean for us today. The psalmist, after all, knew about pain, distress, and foreign aggression. Israel was continually threatened. The people knew the distress of conquest and exile. And it's within this embattled faith and uncertain existence that God's good creation was celebrated by Psalm 19. The psalmists knew that their tenure in life was uncertain and that the benefits of life were always precarious. The harvest might fail, famine might beset the land, plague might suddenly come upon them, armies from the north or the east might invade and take them into exile. And yet despite these threats, they praise God for the beauty of the earth, for the seasons of the year, for the times of good government, and for the appearance of another generation to continue the singing of God's praises. These were all hopeful signs to which they clung in difficult times. And this precarious faith of Israel provides us with a line of continuity into the New Testament. Jesus is not only the crucified one. Jesus is a lover of nature, a friend to lost people. His parables are infused with images of the countryside, of domestic habits, of rural society and of family life. Jesus heals the sick and feeds the hungry. He speaks about God's care for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And Jesus knows that this good creation is threatened by disruptive forces all around him. The order of his society is frequently marred by injustice and threatened by powers in which each of us collude. And as he moves from the countryside to the city, so he comes to confront those evil powers and to disarm them in the name of God who is creator and redeemer. We have to embrace these two passages together. And in standing beneath his cross and reflecting on this one human life, we're drawn into a deeper appreciation of God's great and manifold mercies to us in the sun and the earth, the laws that govern our societies and our households, and in deliverance from the forces that threaten to destroy these forever. Our readings incline towards one another. Perhaps it's in hard times, even more than in good times, that our appreciation of God's world is most genuine. Only when we realize how threatened these gifts are do we come to value their importance. Many of the great hymns of gratitude that we continue to sing were written in the most pressing circumstances. One thinks of Martin Rinkhart, a 17th century Lutheran pastor ministering to his flock. Ravaged by wars and plague, many of them had died. It was calculated that in one year alone, Rinkhart, at great personal risk to himself, 
buried 4,000 of his people, including his own wife. But amidst these circumstances, he composed his great hymn, Non Danket Alla Gott, Now Thank We All Our God. One of the great Lutheran hymns, it's been memorized and sung by countless generations of German Christians across the world, often accompanied to the sound of trumpets. If you go to YouTube, you'll find the news story of German prisoners of war returning from Russia in the mid-1950s. Around 10,000 had survived, and they had been incarcerated in forced labor by the Soviet Union for over 10 years. Their families had no idea whether they were dead or alive, but Konrad Adenauer, their chancellor, traveled to Moscow to negotiate their release. He bargained with the Soviets, and 10,000 were duly released back to Germany. They returned to Friedland half-starved and looking bewildered and lost. You can still see the news clips. There was no victory celebration for defeated soldiers returning to a land still coming to terms with its disgrace. But families gathered praying that they would find their loved ones. Many were disappointed, their hopes crushed. But others found husbands and fathers long disappeared, but now returning to them once again. As they fall into line at the transit camp to be received, the crowds break into a spontaneous singing of now thank we all our God. Everyone knows the words. They sing slowly, but gradually everyone joins in. There's no triumphalism, only relief and gratitude and elation for some that they have reached this day. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us. The wisdom of God is found amidst human foolishness, and the glories of creation are returned to us once again. Amen. Thanks be to God for this reading and this preaching of God's word.